Hello, everybody. My name is Donna Quo, and I am a board-certified psychiatric and family nurse practitioner. Welcome to the Brighten Up podcast, where we pull up the shades and shine the light on mental health topics, both affecting and improving the lives of families. Please welcome today our special guest, Ashley McIntyre, clinical nutrition expert, holistic health coach, and founder of the Elevated Plate to today's Brighten Up podcast. routinely helps busy individuals feel better and get back to themselves through food and lifestyle modifications. Her mission is to encourage and inspire positive lifestyle changes that lead to elevated health by listening to the goals of her clients and meeting them where they are at. She envisions a community where health is a destination and personalized nutrition is the vehicle. How cool is that statement? Health is a destination and your vehicle is nutrition. I think that is brilliant and so true on so many levels. You are what you eat, for sure. The topic of this podcast is your brain on food. We're very lucky to have Ashley here today to share her expertise and discuss nutrition and diet and how that affects how we feel every day, our energy levels, how that affects different struggles, mental health struggles, and we'll break those down a little bit more into categories as we move on in the podcast. So thank you for being here today, Ashley. Thank you for having me. Let's start by asking you just to please tell us a little bit more about yourself and what inspired you to pursue a career as a holistic health coach and and nutrition expert. Thank you again for having me. I actually went to school initially at the University of Florida, Go Gators, for marketing. And after school was a pharmaceutical rep for about eight and a half years. And then when I had children, decided to stay home with my kids. And um, so this is a second career and quite a pendulum switch from, you know, selling drugs, basically, to um, using food as medicine. And um what really? type of drugs were you selling, if you don't mind me asking? What, what I industry? Was, in the- let, I was all over the place. So I did like Advair for asthma, Flonase, which is like for allergies. And then I ended in the oncology space doing like breast cancer, which was pretty, pretty cool. But in terms of when COVID hit, I knew that when my youngest went to kindergarten, I wanted to go back to work. And I knew I wanted to do something different and hadn't quite figured it out. And when COVID hit... I've always been passionate about nutrition and I became very immersed in research trying to make sure to keep my family healthy. Like how could we do that through food? And it became kind of like an obsession and it turned into going back to school for health coaching and then a master's in clinical nutrition. And here I am now, um, started a, a nutrition consultation practice, the elevated plate, and I'm finishing up my clinical hours. So that's fantastic. Yeah. A great concept, the elevated plate. Really, elevated plate yields elevated lifestyle. <laughs> happy life, happy, happy families. Exactly. Nutrition and this topic as it pertains to mental health has definitely been gaining traction and a growing field of study more and more so with each passing year. There was recently a journal, a reputable journal, the Lancet, psychiatry journal 
was quoted as saying, diet as, is as important to psychiatry and mental health as it is to cardiology, endocrinology, and gastroenterology. So it's not only just you have diabetes, you have to watch your diet, or you have reflux, don't eat anything spicy, or maybe you have hypothyroidism, or you have high cholesterol, watch your diet. Now we're really opening the conversation surrounding mental health and various conditions and, and how your one's diet may affect those conditions or the outcome of treatment. So what has been your experience with guiding clients on their nutritional needs who are living with I'll name just a few of the most common mental health conditions, such as depression, anxiety, mood disorders. I know this is a lot. Uh, I'm really picking your brain. Autism or ADHD. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. There was, you know, in terms of looking at research that's shown that food can really affect our mental health status, the American Journal of Psychiatry actually published an article on nutrition and they stated it is both compelling and daunting to consider that dietary intervention at an individual or population level could reduce rates of psychiatric disorders. So, you know, we don't have all the information yet, but from what, from the data that we've had from the studies that have been done in general, before we get into some of these like disease states that you mentioned, food first and foremost, in general, it's reduce some of the sugar because there's sugar in so much that we aren't even aware of that we're consuming. And let's reduce the processed foods that we're eating. So in general, if we just consume a whole food diet, that's what we're looking at and getting down to kind of just going back to foods that's that are grown and that our grandparents ate and not things that are in boxes. There's kind of four things. So I would say food first and foremost. Second, inflammation. So, and that can come in so many different forms. So it's personalized. It could be from over-exercising. It could be that you have a lot of chronic diseases. There's so many things that can cause inflammation in our body. So that's a personalized one, but we definitely need to reduce the inflammation. And then Stress, which obviously can lead to inflammation, is another one that's really important. There are so many chronic stressors like fatigue, insomnia, if you have frequent illnesses, there, you know, a client's perceived state of stress too. And then the fourth one I think is the most important, and that's really your gut. Because, you know, like Hippocrates said, he said all disease begins in the gut. And while he didn't have the data that we have now to support that, he was right. What he didn't realize is that there is a, a, a nine-lane highway that runs from your gut to your brain and a one-lane highway, you know, your gut-brain axis that runs from your brain to your gut. So what that really means is that what happens in the gut doesn't stay in the gut and that we need to consider this especially for mental health. You know, serotonin is made in the gut. And so if we can feed our gut, the microbes that are in our microbiome, our bacteria that's in our, the microbiome housed in our gut, that's like supporting it with prebiotic foods, probiotic foods, doing vagal stimulation, stuff like that, then that can really be important for mental health. And, you know, I don't know if you have specific questions around the other you know, kind of disease states for mental health, like anxiety, depression, I definitely have recommend recommendations that are more specific for those. Yes, I would love to, you know, break them down a little bit. I know we could probably have a whole podcast we and <laughs> really divide this uh, specifically, which we will in the future. You know, we're just skimming the surface today on these topics as an introduction on these various diagnoses. But just to comment on the serotonin production in the gut, I mean, that's really 
when patients are started or are on a medication for depression or anxiety, that's a, that's a common initial side effect that we counsel them on is that you might notice just a little bit of nausea the first two or three days of starting an antidepressant because it is stimulating that serotonin production that's, that is in the gut as well. So really just highlighting that point of how important a healthy gut is and microproduction. So that's a good way to put it as far as like the illustration with the highways. And if I, I wish I, for the listeners, there's like a diagram that I wish I could show you that really portrays it, but it's basically the highway really describes it, the nine lane highway from the gut to the brain. And so what happens in the gut just doesn't stay there. And we just need to be mindful of that with um, mental health. And it is really like these other autoimmune disease states, because really things like diabetes and hypothyroidism, they often come together with people as coexisting conditions and they are autoimmune conditions and and the role that inflammation plays in that. And I think it's really the same is true with mental health. Oh, for sure. So specifically looking like it, you had mentioned anxiety and depression and those, while they are separated, kind of the overarching goals with clients that I work with would be focusing on blood sugar control, number one. When we eat something, whether it's sugar-based like ice cream or a cookie or whether it's mainly carbohydrates, just like eating some crackers or pasta, it turns into glucose in our our blood and that spikes our blood glucose levels. And so if we are constantly having these peaks and valleys, that leads to inflammation. And so that leads to a part cascade of events in our body. And so if we can control our blood sugar, it really makes us feel more steady. We don't feel like this rush of energy and this total like slump of energy when it falls. If we can eliminate any food triggers, which can be done by testing it out yourself for four to six weeks, or there's food testing, food sensitivity testing that can be done. But gluten and eggs for both of those have been shown that not with every client because it's personalized, but that can be beneficial and reducing or eliminating caffeine, sugar, and alcohol as well. So those are kind of like some of the overarching ones with clients that have anxiety or depression, that those are kind of like the big things that we would want to work on first. And then there's like little things that you can work on, like specifically with anxiety, adding in fish with omega-3s or specifically with depression, looking at nutrient deficiencies like zinc, selenium, chromium, and magnesium, and making sure that we're actually eating foods that have those in them and that we're not deficient because that can lead to depression. So those are kind of like some overarching things. And then the other thing that I don't think most people realize is that not only is protein important for bone health and for our muscles, Protein is really important because it contains the building blocks amino acids that are needed to make um, neurotransmitters that, you know, if we don't have those, they can lead to anxiety and depression. So, for instance, if we're not taking in enough protein, we're going to not have enough tryptophan which leads to low serotonin and depression. And then again, if we're not eating enough protein, we're not going to have enough amino acid phenylalanine, which can lead to low dopamine and depression. And, you know, the food sources for those are not always meat, but they are, you know, you want to make sure you have enough protein in your diet so that your body can make those neurotransmitters. That's kind of like part of the pathway. Absolutely. It's it's an important staple and an important consideration with the people especially that might follow vegetarian diets just looking for those alternate sources of protein and making sure that they have the adequate amount needed to maintain 
healthy brain function. For sure. And it doesn't mean that if I have a client that's vegan or vegetarian that I'm trying to get them to eat meat because that's not fair. That's right. Sometimes it's a ethical belief. Like we definitely, I work with my clients based upon what's important to them. And if that's important to them, we'll find other ways. You can get it from tofu and nuts and seeds and quinoa and legumes, and we can get it from other places. We just have to be more mindful and teach the client to be more mindful when they're curating their plate. Sure. I think another important vitamin to consider is is vitamin D. I For our listeners living in, in colder climates during the winter, those levels are, are often low or maybe not even that low. Maybe they're in the middle somewhere. But that really can wreak havoc with depression and anxiety, especially during the colder months. Yeah. And and interestingly, even, even in some warmer climates, I met a gentleman that really had a severe case of COVID, was, was hospitalized from Florida, and he's outside most every day. He is a contractor, so he spends a lot of his time working on homes and, and doing things outside. And he was hospitalized and found to have a very low vitamin D level, but he also had a diet that, a very high processed diet, which... I understand can actually block the absorption mm-hmm. of vitamin D, even if you are out in the sunshine quite a bit. You can yeah. almost reverse that. Have you come across that or seen that? No, I haven't. But there's like a couple things that play with vitamin D, and I'm glad you brought it up. And I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but there have been lots of studies since COVID came out looking at vitamin D and be having an inverse relationship with COVID death. So if your levels are too low, not that there is a causation, but there is a correlation between having really low vitamin D levels and when COVID was at its peak and the death rate with that, when the, their levels were very low. But in terms of vitamin D, I feel like we're all scared a little bit of the sun because of sun cancer and wrinkles and all the things. Yes. So we're all wearing these sun protective shirts. We're all wearing sunscreen. So even though you and I both live in Florida, we probably aren't getting enough vitamin D from the sun. Getting it through diet, kind of going back to gut health, if your gut can't absorb it because you're having some sort of absorption issue, then your levels are going to be low. So if levels are low, it may be from diet. It's probably not from sun. It could be from an absorption issue as well. How do you work with clients who present with you that are concerned about a potential absorption issue? What is some testing you would recommend or some symptoms that you might look for that might alert you to? Um, It wouldn't be if they were just low on like vitamin D, but their other levels and their symptoms were fine. It would be more like, okay, well, maybe we need to supplement with vitamin D. It would be if they really, a lot of their levels were low. So if, you know, looking at B12, if we're looking at they're having like, they don't have maybe enough stomach acid to break down their food. There's like a lot of different variables. There's stool tests that can be done, but there's not, I guess, one pathway. It would have to be you know, almost personalized by a client-by-client basis. And that's how you would assess really mm-hmm. where they were at with their microbe health when yeah. they came to you, see you. They, you, would, you would order a panel of mm-hmm. different tests just to, to look at really the levels. And, and it would be based upon their symptoms too and, you know, the client's budget if they're able to afford to do tests or if we're going to be like, just like I said earlier with um, foods to eliminate for certain like depression. So if they can... If it's in their um, affordability to run a food sensitivity test, great. But also, let's just remove it for like four weeks and see if you see a difference, sure, right? Sure. That's a 
a very, it's free to do that, just to remove dairy or to remove gluten for four weeks and see if that makes a difference. Because if it doesn't make a difference, then I would hate to remove, um, especially dairy, because that's, you know, people can get calcium from a lot of places, but people are very concerned about getting their calcium from dairy. And then I don't like to remove a food group unless it's a true sensitivity that is affecting your mental health or affecting some other portion of your health. That's great advice. And I agree. It is free. And there are common villains in, in the food groups that really can aggravate these symptoms, like yeah. like gluten especially. And, and, sure. and, you know, for some folks, dairy. Another diagnosis that really has increased in prevalence has been young children diagnosed with autism is significantly on the rise. That also has some inflammation component as well. And oftentimes with that population, they have some, several actually food aversions and texture issues. Have you worked with any clients or experienced, you know, any situations with children or adults living with autism, dealing with those specific concerns surrounding their nutrition and food? I have not had a client yet or worked with a child with autism. I know that from grad school, it's complex and it involves dysfunction kind of at the cellular level, which is why an optimal diet is the foundation. But like you said, that is, it's tricky because they have so many, you know, they're very sensitive to what they will and will not eat. B12 is really important for those clients from food sources. Folate, again, from like green leafy vegetables can be helpful. And then any anything that's colorful that's going to have like micronutrients and um, polyphenols in it, colorful fruits and veggies um, for, you know, their antioxidant source is important. There's a glutathione is like kind of our master antioxidant. It's really important for detoxification and kind of being able to rid our body of the toxins that it doesn't need. And something, eating something like broccoli sprouts and sprinkling that on a salad if they're going to eat it can be really beneficial. These clients, unfortunately, they usually present with gastrointestinal disorders. And so gut dysbiosis kind of, again, going back to the gut is increasingly documented with them. So working on helping them with their gut, a specific probiotic for autism, you know, would be a good recommendation. But kind of that's kind of like the all-encompassing kind of looking at different factors and then working with that specific client to see, well, you know, you don't like that food that has, you know, vitamin B12. What about these other foods? Can we, do you like any of these? Can we, can we get these in throughout the day or throughout the week? So with vitamin B12 being a champion specifically for autism and and, and, folate, like you said, yeah. and folate and creating that, that personalized plan. For sure. And there has even been situations for with stem cell and even transferring gut bacteria from people who living who are not autistic, who are not neurodivergent into that population that's gaining some momentum as well. I'm not sure if that's approved in the U.S. yet. Doing okay. a, I, and I could be incorrect. I thought that, you know, we're sometimes we're the last to do things and get things approved, but that has been doing, um, what do they call it? Um, bacteria transfer or fecal transfer to another patient can even be helpful for many other disease states. If you're transferring like the, like in terms of the microbes that are in your gut lining for those that aren't familiar, the more diverse, the better. So if you ate the same breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day, even if they were like perfectly curated meals, 
you're only going to be getting those specific bacteria in your gut and the other ones are going to die off if you're not feeding them with a variety of food. So eating a variety of food leads to a diverse microbiome and of the bacteria in your gut. And so if you take a diverse microbiome and put it in somebody that wasn't given a diverse microbiome at birth because we get it through the birth canal when we're, that's part of like how we're like inoculated. That's how our microbiome starts. That has been shown to be beneficial, but I think that I've only seen those studies overseas, but I could be incorrect. It's very new here in the United States, but yes, that probably is where it's actually been performed, I think is, is overseas. And I think that's a good reminder for our listeners and and even our you know myself is is to diversify your diet. Don't necessarily eat the same things. Kind of yep. branch out, try different things to really expand your microbe exposure and develop that healthy gut. Yeah. One other diagnosis I really have to touch on because it is really increasing and so prevalent is lack of attention and focus. Symptoms of attention deficit disorder is really on the rise. And it is a definitely, you know, a true psychiatric condition that oftentimes is helped by increasing the free-floating dopamine in the front part of the brain to the right level that just helps to alleviate difficulty with concentration and follow through. I do believe some other contributing factors could be just really technology, just mm-hmm. having a hard time maintaining attention and, and follow through because of that. We're just really an instantaneous culture now. We like things quick. We don't like lengthy letters. We text. You know, it's it's just a different time period. I so uh, it's interesting talking with people who are self-medicating with a lot of caffeine to get through their day through energy drinks. And, you know, I talked to somebody, I think, that has 12 Diet Pepsis a day. Wow. Literally. So what what is your advice for caffeine intake and and also for people formally diagnosed living, you know, with, with ADHD and supplementing with medication for dopamine? For caffeine intake in general, you know, there's like a bunch of pillars that I think are really important to health. Sleep is one of them. So I don't think caffeine is bad by any means, but if it's, if you're drinking it so late in the day that it's affecting your sleep, then you're just like chasing yourself. Like it's like a dog chasing its tail. Like you just never win. You're not getting enough sleep. You're over caffeinating. You're not getting enough sleep. You're over caffeinating and you're just spiraling. So I think sleep is first foremost paramount. So if having that second cup of coffee at 3 PM is going to mess up your sleep, then like let's stop before noon. Um, so I think that's just in general, um, caffeine can be useful for ADHD clients and it not you would have to work with your physician. I would never take a ADHD client off of their medication, but it can be you can replace it with like a stimulant type medication and see if that is works for you. Now at those levels that you're talking about um, the friend that drinks all of the diet Pepsis or Cokes all day long, processed foods. So let's get back to real food. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And it's definitely way too much caffeine. Two cups a day I would say it's probably of some some version of caffeine is probably the most that you know we need because that's probably all you can get in before eleven or twelve, which is when I usually tell my clients to cut it off. So that's a, it's not terrible for health. It's just it depends on if it's affecting your sleep, and it might actually help an ADHD client focus a little more. But in terms of those ADHD clients, you know we want to avoid or limit sugar. 
and artificial colors and preservatives. Hydration is really important for those clients. And then if their budget allows eating organic foods is really important. And that's, you know, it depends on what they have available to them, but organic can be important for those clients, you know, getting out any of the pesticides or anything that might, you know, contribute to their ADHD. What about dopamine enhancing foods? Are there any that you can think of that might actually help with that production, yeah. so to speak? Going back when I was talking about protein and getting those amino acids to make those, um, you know, happy neurotransmitters. So phenylalanine uh, rich food sources would be like meat, fish, eggs, cheese, nuts and seeds, quinoa and legumes. And then if you're not glucose sensitive, wheat, oats, rye and barley, and then soy and tempeh as well. Those can all be very, those are all higher sources of phenylalanine. And then that's what leads to the production of dopamine, kind of like the cascading chain. And if you don't have enough, that is something that can contribute to both depression and anxiety as well. Sure. What's your favorite recipe that you might provide somebody I'm a bowl person because I feel like eat, whether it's my own picky family or whether we're having other friends and family over for dinner, I tend to make a lot of bowls for dinner because then people can put what they want in their bowl. So whether we're having like zucchini noodles, maybe we're having some lentil or chickpea pasta or some rice, that being the base, and then we're having meat or seafood on top. We add in some cheese. I always like toasted almonds. That's like my go-to because I think they taste delicious. Or you can add sesame seeds or something to your bowl legumes for anyone that's not familiar with like the blue zones um, it's something to google afterwards but it's you know there are five blue zones in the world and that's where Dan Butner has discovered that there are the most sanitarians which are people over 100 that are concentrated and one of the benefits that he found that these blue zones hold is that they eat a lot of legumes. So I always try to get those in my diet. They're a great fiber source as well. So to kind of just create a bowl and to try to get some of those. And if you're eating a bowl like that, get some green leafy veggies. And then I always say anything with color that will get more micronutrients in your diet. And that's typically not how I eat every night, but that's just what I tend to go towards because then people can pick and choose what they prefer and don't prefer. And I have like an adaptable, I call it an adaptable quinoa salad on my website that, you know, kind of does that. And there's different versions of things that you can throw in. I like quinoa because it's a, pro- it's a good protein source as well. And if you make it with bone broth, it has even more protein in it if you're not a vegan. But it, it's a really great protein source to start a base with. And they're really fun to make. I mean, they're mm-hmm. colorful, they're bright, they're delicious. You can have, you know, some... Some warmer, maybe, you know, uh, whole grain rice or, mm-hmm. or quinoa there with, yeah. with whatever protein, sometimes a little bit of chicken and top it with some gorgeous multicolored vegetables. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome. Um, exactly. it, it's a great, great idea. It really speaks to the rising replacement of a lot of fast food restaurants is having those options available. Like Core Life is one that I can think of that makes bowls a business in the northeast actually and i know there's a few healthy kitchen i think close to us Mm -hmm. is another restaurant that does the same thing so very cool and lastly just on this as well when you when you spoke about the omega-3s it's very interesting that 
the incidence of mental health conditions such as bipolar disorder, mood dysregulation, are really low in countries that consume a lot of fish, like Asian countries. Mm -hmm. So definitely a protective factor with keeping inflammation down and managing symptoms. It's definitely anti-inflammatory. The U.S., the averages that I've seen is that the ratio of omega-3 fatty acids to omega-6 is 1 to 10. And the goal would be to have it more like one to four. So you're consuming omega-6s and much more omega-3s. And unfortunately, our foods are so that are processed are so laden with those omega-6 fatty acids. That's why we have such a higher consumption in the United States. It's just we eat so much processed food, whereas not only do they eat less processed food in like Asian countries, they're also, like you said, eating a lot more fish. It's like the double whammy. And so their their levels are more in a more optimal place for optimal health. I'm sure, sure. I'm sure it makes for interesting international nutrition conferences and yeah. and how we're going to guide our country and our kids and, and future generations on diet. I mean, I I think we're going to have to really take a better look and implement some changes really at at the the first level of of production. And Well, and I think that has a lot to do with just educating people that your food choices, not maybe not just, you know, on Christmas Day, right? It's not just eating cookies and um, having celebration stuff. It's the stuff that you do day in and day out. That's, they can make a huge p- impact in your health later on. And if we're educated in that, then we can vote with our fork. And if we're, uh, you're right, I shouldn't say vote with our fork, vote with our wallet, right? right. So if we're putting our money in buying whole foods, then that's where you know, the focus is going to go versus if everyone's buying as a collective more processed foods, then obviously there's going to be more processed foods on the shelf and less options. So just like I feel like there's more gluten sensitivities that people have found and there's a lot more gluten-free options, but just because it's in a gluten-free processed, just gluten-free crackers are really just the same as regular crackers. They just don't have gluten in them. doesn't mean that they're better for you. It doesn't mean that they're, <laughs> that they're not processed. Right. Yes, yes. And and that especially rang true this past summer. I spent some time in Portugal, and my kids and I went out for pizza one night, and the crust was just so wonderfully, like, moist and fresh and delicious. And when we picked up the piece of pizza, there was not any grease on the plate. It just was really very clean and come to find out after talking with some of Europeans and some of the natives that the gluten content in European countries is just not, there's no comparison right. to what we have here a, a and lot, how we process wheat. For sure. Um, and a lot of people that have gluten sensitivities in America can go to Europe and they can eat pizza without a problem because it's just so much more highly processed and it's there's been so many um modifications i guess to the actual grain that it's ours is so processed versus theirs is much more whole and unprocessed and you know it's just easier for people to digest and people are even ordering from europe once they return here to the states they're ordering pizza crust and or you know importing certain wheat derivatives to make things, you know, from Europe. So yeah. that's really interesting. And I think that needs to kind of get on. We have to have more of a conversation about that, especially as it correlates with the rising 
statistics and mental illness and struggles and suicidality and, and all the issues we're facing as a country. That would be drug addiction. That would be an important, really doable intervention as well. So I, I hope that leaders like yourself are able to continue to educate people and even at a political level. Oh, for sure. I agree. I agree. It is really crazy just with, especially with families, you know, you have three kids, I have four kids. It seems like we live in our cars sometimes. We're always on the go. We always have to, everybody has to be someplace, some sometime different. Or maybe we eat dinner as a family twice a month based on busy work schedules and, and different commitments. How would you recommend in a culture where we have Chick-fil-A at every corner, which which actually is probably not too bad if you get the grilled nuggets, you can make healthier choices. There, <laughs> there are options. How do you encourage families or clients who who might be resistant to making dietary changes because they're too busy or because there's just it's just too hard? I think in terms of those clients, what's key is planning. So if if what is the saying if you if you don't plan then you can't achieve the goal like it's like there's like a saying and I'm blanking on it right now but I think planning really is key I always encourage clients Sunday just because it's the day before the week starts to plan it out with your significant other and your kids like what's on the schedule who who needs to be where and then plan out those nights okay well we're all going to be home on Tuesday so I'm going to make maybe I'll make this pot of chili and I'm going to double it so we can have it on Wednesday and just kind of plan out the week. And then, okay, what are we going to do for breakfast? Should I go ahead on Sunday and make a batch of chia pudding and throw it in the fridge so we can all, you know, have it for breakfast on Monday and Tuesday and be able to kind of plan it out? Because when my clients struggle the most is when they leave the house and they have no idea what they're eating for the day, because then it leads to, well, I don't have time. And then by the time they have time to eat, they're starving. And then we, do, we don't make the choices that are going to be beneficial for, for health. No one does. It's like, don't go to the grocery store when you're hungry. Right. You know what I mean? You'll I buy everything. That. Yes. <laughs> or the chocolate so. covered almonds, not the dark chocolate, the milk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you can, if you can replace, if you can plan and replace any of those to-go meals as much as possible. So we're eating more of those whole foods. That's great. Home delivery kits or home delivery meals are also a great alternative, again, for those that can afford to, to do those because they can be slightly more expensive, but then they're all done for you. And some of them, I do have some clients that, you know, live alone, so they don't want to cook these big meals. And you can just get a single portion already made meal too. And so that can be really easy. And some of them are very tasty and pretty useful to put in place for stuff like that. Absolutely. I'm thinking of one called Factor that my Mm -hmm. neighbor orders and uses to feed her family of only three people right now. But a great option for really somebody older living on their own. And And a lot of them have like, you know, they'll have different meal plans. So if you go on and say like, I need something that's more heart healthy or because you have cholesterol or blood sugar issues, or maybe you need something that's more blood sugar friendly because you have prediabetes or diabetes. There's, and so if you click that, then they really can make life more simple. And, you know, as a nutrition expert, I can help recipes and stuff like that for those that do have the time. But like you said, not everyone has the time to sit down and cook a meal from soup to nuts, you know? 
Absolutely. But I think planning is key. Having healthy snacks, water at your fingertips. I always have snacks in the car. Hunger, hunger, a lot of people get really angry when they're hungry. You know, Mm -hmm. yes, exactly. Exactly. And that can be quite disruptive. And right, they'll just run in to a drugstore and just grab a huge candy bar, big bag of chips. And once you do that, you've, you pretty much have kind of spiked your blood glucose and, and can kind of have that whole cascade of symptoms of... And then you're leading having, towards inflammation. And then if you're doing that on a regular basis, if we do that every now and then, you know, it's no big deal, right? It's the the habits that we do day in and day out. So if that's our normal, then down the line, you're going to have, you know, higher A1C levels because your, sug- your sugars are going up and down too much. And Nothing changes if nothing changes, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> isn't, that the, isn't that true? Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of hydration, can you touch on what your recommendation is for water consumption and, and hydration and for people that don't really like water, what alternatives you might suggest and, and how that affects your, your brain and your mental health? Sure. So in general, I recommend about half your body weight in ounces. So, cause it really is dependent. You, I mean, some, a 250 pound male should drink way more than like a hundred pound female. I mean, you can't just, so it's, it's based upon body weight. So about half your body weight in ounces. There actually was a study, a large study from 2018 that actually found an inverse relationship between plain water consumption and depression. So the more that you're hydrated, the lower incidence. And again, this is a correlation, not a causation, but of depression, uh, depressive symptoms. It's, you know, really key for health, um, especially living in Florida where it's so hot. We may even have to consume a little bit more than that half body weight in ounces, the heat and making sure we're replenishing electrolytes. It can be used as a weight management tool by consuming like two cups of water before a meal. That's been shown to have 44% greater weight loss than when you don't do it because you're you're filling up your stomach and you can't, you know, consume as much. So it can be used as a weight management tool, but it's really important. And I think people don't realize how much water can play into migraines. Water can play, it can, if you're dehydrated, you can, your blood sugar levels can spike higher than they normally would than if you were hydrated. And in terms of like how to make it taste good, I would um, avoid artificial sweeteners. They're not bad. Like monk fruit is probably one of the better ones, but especially talking about blood sugar issues, they can still spike blood sugar, even though they're a sugar alternative. There's been studies that have shown that usually not at the time that you take them, but it's later in the day. That's really Um, interesting. I did um, not know that. And I did not know dehydration could really worsen blood sugar spikes, you know, for people that are following low sugar keto diets that Mm-hmm. And then people, you know, and if in terms of like our detoxification system and our body getting rid of toxins, if we're not drinking enough water, then we're not having daily bowel movements. And you don't want food to sit in your colon for that long because once your body has absorbed what it needs, then what's left over is bowel movement. And those toxins need to leave our system. Like we don't want them sitting in us forever. So that's part of like, you need to have a a proper detoxification pathway and making sure that we're hydrated so that we don't impair that is really important. It can lead to a lot of, you know, issues. Sure. So 
half your body weight in ounces. Yep, that's the general recommendation. And if you're going to make it taste better, use fruit like lime, lemon, orange. You know, a cheap electrolyte replacement would be just squeezing lemon and doing like some sea salt or some Celtic salt in your water to kind of replenish. That's the, there's so many different ones that are out there now that are expensive and, um, some of them can be overly expensive. I don't know how to, but in terms of if you're just looking for something easy to do after a workout, that's what I would recommend. Okay. And I always, if I'm at a nice fancy restaurant, I always opt for the, the tap water. What are your thoughts on like the different types of of water. You know, there's yep. alkaline, there's purified, there's tap water. I mean, what, what are, I know in Florida, we, we have to be a little bit, from what I've heard, the tap water is not the best, but maybe I'm wrong. Please. Um, you- so in term, I mean, really the best and not the cheapest would be to get like spring water in a glass container. Because then you're not getting the plastics from the plastic bottle and spring waters have lots of minerals in them. So that's like if you're, if you've gone down a rabbit hole. For people that are just living everyday life, I do recommend getting some sort of filter on either your faucet in your kitchen or maybe on your fridge. If you want to spend extensive amounts of money and do your whole house, you can. But you know, I just do one on my refrigerator that is, I don't like reverse osmosis because it takes everything out. And actually doesn't remove fluoride, and I don't. I don't. Can really you get explain that. what that is? So reverse osmosis just basically takes all of the contaminants that could be in your water out. And for some reason, I don't know why, but my understanding is that fluoride is not removed, and at least where we live, fluoride is added to our water. And that's like a, a whole probably another podcast that you could do. <laughs> so. I I would prefer not have fluoride in my water. It has been shown to cross the blood-brain barrier. And so with reverse osmosis, you'd actually have to do another step to remove, like another filter to remove the fluoride. And then you have to add back in minerals because it takes them out. So it makes it too sterile. Like it, you, you need those minerals. So I prefer... And I'm blanking on the one I have on my fridge, but it removes fluoride and a lot of the other chemicals that can be in your water. And so my whole family, we just have stainless steel water water bottles that we use, and that's what we fill up and drink. And if we, you know, obviously convenience, we get water when we're traveling and stuff like that, you know, in plastic bottles, we have to live our life. But um, in general, I do try to get filtered water that has fluoride removed and a lot of the other chemicals. And that's what I, I drink daily based upon the research that I've done. And and a lot of this is up until the research we have now because research is always evolving. So a year or two from now, there could be more information that's released for different mental health disease states that might change the game. And we might say, oh, actually, this would be better. So it's just really where the research is today. So a nice Stanley Steel collection is a great investment. Um, It is. And I know, you know, I... Glass is great too. It's just not practical because if you drop it, it's going to shatter. Sure. I think glass could be probably the best, but it's just not practical. Right. <laughs> Especially for kids or right. playing sports and all of that. But definitely a step up from right. plastic. Because so- even if the plastic water bottles say BPA free, there are so many different versions of plastics that are going to leach into your water. If you're drinking, cold water, it's not as big of a concern as if you're putting like tea or coffee in something that's plastic, then that's when it's going to leach those, those plastic particles probably at a higher rate because it's like melting it a little. Interesting. Where do you buy mineral water in a glass container? Where, where would you? I, 
I mean, and could I, you buy a big, you know, is there a water service that you can think of? There, or? I can't think of, I don't know one off the top of my head, but there are spring water sources that you can have delivered and like those large, big barrels, you know, I feel like when I was growing up, we always had some of those friends that had the water filter in the corner of like the dining room or the kitchen that was like the big jug tub. Yes. Yes. That's down. what I'm thinking of. Um, so it's something like that, that you could do. But like I said, that is like, that's, that's plastic, an, though. That's, but, but no, that they come in glass. They come in glass you now. Can, you oh. can, they don't always, I think you can get them. But that's okay. like, so I don't know where you do that. That's another level. I'm I'm, I'm just doing yes, <laughs> one of my Yes, that's fridge. another level. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great Google search. Yes. And, yes. and I'm curious, how about educating clients about portion control in mindful eating? What are some tips that you have? You know, there's, there's a strong component with people that might struggle on it. The struggle is real with living with daily depression or anxiety or ADHD or mood dysregulation. And and a common self-medication tactic, of course, is is food. Mm-hmm. Grabbing something, maybe that, that comfort food for that individual, whatever it is, that temporarily gets them back to their zen state, which we right. know is not not prolonged, but what do you recommend just for clients and their families for portion control advice and, and mindful eating? So there's so many different things that I, suggestions that I could make in terms of like the mindful intuitive eating space. I feel like it's a lot different today than again, it was for our grandparents. Cause we have a TV, we have a cell phone, we have iPads, our computers are there. So, and there's no break in a sense, especially for adults and for kids when they get home between doing homework and us doing work. There's like this constant working. And so we're constantly not paying attention while we're eating. Even at breakfast, if you have your cell phone in your hand or you're working at your desk at lunch or you're watching TV while you're eating dinner, we're not paying attention. And so there's a great book. It's called Intuitive Eating. It's by Evelyn Tripoli, I believe. I use the workbook and she does a great example about talking about intuitive eating and how it's much like driving while texting. So while the driver may feel like they can drive and text, they are definitely distracted and it is not a good idea. So it's the same thing in terms of distracted eating. So you might have the impression that you can watch TV and eat at the same time, but you're truly missing out on like the sensory aspects of eating. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I have like my my weakness and it's actually has health benefits. It's dark chocolate. So I'll take it out. I'll take out like a square or two of dark chocolate to have in the afternoon. And then before I know it, I go to have some more and it's gone. And it's because I'm sitting at my desk doing it. And so I didn't even, I wasn't even aware that I was eating it because I was distracted and doing work. So the more that we can remove those distractions, I've even told clients to like put out a placemat, turn on some music, in Florida, we have beautiful weather. Go sit outside. Just kind of be present, and you're not going to be in that rush state because what can happen is that our plate will be empty, and we're full, but we've we didn't experience the like all the pleasures of the meal, so we may still have this like profound desire to continue eating. Right. So a lot of it is just really focusing on just like sit down and take a breath. You know, it may it probably only takes 10, 15 minutes to actually eat a meal, right? And so we're really not going to miss out too much on the work or whatever it is if we just sit down and like focus on what we're eating. So there's a lot of different tactics around it, but I think that being more mindful 
and putting all distractions away while you eat, actually, you'll realize how fast you're eating. Absolutely. Being present, being mindful, Mm -hmm. having just enjoying the food. Food is such a wonderful part of our culture. Oh, for sure. We use it to celebrate milestones and birthdays and and we should savor it and enjoy it. And I agree if that means getting a nice plate or a nice table setting to make it more enticing and and increase your awareness or even something like a weighted blanket on your lap to oh, that's a great to idea. ground I've you. I've never thought of that. Yeah. I encourage those a, a lot to kids who have a hard time sitting still yeah. doing their homework. And, and I think it could work for really any age just to be mindful with what you're eating yeah. and, and realize just those slower bites and what the reward is there and how, how full you feel and without indulging excessively. For sure. And a a cool um, exercise to do is to take like a piece of dark chocolate. And put it in your mouth. Don't bite it. Don't try to like lick it. Like just let it sit and melt and just kind of like really be aware of like all the flavors in the dark chocolate and maybe you've gotten salted dark chocolate and you can actually taste the sweet and the salt at the same time and like really be aware it's a cool exercise and it can make you really appreciate food a little more and again just you know bringing your attention back to the the food that you're consuming because it is I hate it when people talk about diets because it really should be a lifestyle, right? Like let's try to not do something for January, let's do something for like this is a change that I'm going to make forever and not look for the short the short term but the long term. No elevator to success and if you're <laughs> if you're going to do something radically for a short period you might you know eventually it's going to reverse. I right. I think slow and steady wins the race especially with nutrition and and dietary changes. For sure. It's so important and also just exposing young kids on how to eat at a young age. Mm-hmm. And and we've evolved so much from when we were kids. I can remember going through a period in college where, oh, just have pasta. Have as much pasta as you want. That's that's healthy, you know, right. and without really alluding to what you said earlier, you know, the breakdown of the pasta turning into sugar, being stored as fat, increasing right. cholesterol. So it's 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 interesting, these different fads, but we always kind of come back to really the pillars of what comes from the ground, right. <laughs> what comes Just from the earth. foods, right? Right, right. Um, and, you know, there's tips and tricks. Obviously, like you said, it's not we can't make every meal from scratch every, you know, every single day. Our life doesn't work that way. So let's plan and let's figure out how we can do the best we can with what we have. And I know Costa Rica, I have a friend who has, visits Costa Rica a couple times a year and just talks about the blue zones and wanting to retire there and just what a beautiful, healthy lifestyle it is. So that's, that's on my bucket list to visit. I, it, it is on my bucket list too. Haven't made it yet. But there's a direct flight out of Orlando. I think I've looked into it before. (laughs) There is. Okay. Hey, that's easy. Very easy. What about, I I know that you touched on the the mindful eating, the awareness. What is is a generalization? I know it's different depending on really height and weight of individuals. But what do you encourage as far as portion sizes and, and frequency of eating or snacking? Do you recommend three meals what are your thoughts 
on folks that are maybe intermittent fasting. That's a bigger so it really trend de- right now. Yeah, it really depends on the client's goals. You know, if they're a male and we're trying to, you know, mitigate some sort of cholesterol issues or weight loss, intermittent fasting might be a great idea. A lot of the studies on intermittent fasting have been done on men. There's just not a lot on women, and our hormones are very different than a man's. We are not small men. (laughs) Right, right. So a lot of those tests, the reason that a lot of studies are done on men is because they don't have a menstrual cycle and there's no hormone changes. So they feel like it's easier to take that um, variable out of the equation by just using men. The studies that I've seen that have been done on intermittent fasting in women, especially those going through hormonal changes like perimenopause and menopause, it could just be an added stressor. So when you are fasting, it is an added stress on your body with so many added stressors that we already have, like just stress in general or over-exercising or foods that we eat causing inflammation and stuff like that. We just don't need any more stressors on our body and that could really put us into a It could spike your cortisol, which is your um, stress hormone high, and it can just kind of be a cascade of events. So it it can happen more in females. So I wouldn't say intermittent fasting is for everyone. That would be like a case-by-case basis. I do recommend most that people fast between dinner and breakfast. So like no late night snack. Um, because to, you know, getting, allowing our body to have 12 hours of like not having to digest food and just doing like, I call them like cleaning up, like letting our cells do these cleanup processes so that then we can start again in the morning. And there's different studies show that you should have somewhere between three and five hours between meals just to let, again, your stomach completely get rid of the food and, and, and move it on. Because if you're continually eating, again, going back to blood sugar, your blood sugar is con- going to be continually high and it's going to have those peaks and valleys. So it would really be client dependent. I know that's not a fun answer. Right. No, it's it's actually <laughs> it depends on their goals. You it's know? actually very helpful because we are we are different as women. You know, we are we have menstrual cycles. We are able to have babies. Our bodies are trained differently mm-hmm. to to support that, and our metabolism often really slows down to five miles an hour if we deprive ourselves too much. Right. I think some of the newer recommendations for women have been as much as, you know, a 20-hour fast and a four-hour eating window that I can see how that could be a little bit excessive right? Depend on the continuum of where a woman is in her life and actually go the other way, slow down your metabolism and make it more difficult to get to that healthy body mass index. There's periods and there's studies that have looked at doing it for certain amounts of time. Like there's fast mimicking diets that are like five days long, I believe. And if, you know, you do those a couple different times a year, so definitely not doing them every single day. If you do those a couple times a year, they do have benefits of like, like longevity, reduced cancer rates and stuff like that. But that is something that you're just doing for a very short period of time, like I said, five days. The continual intermittent fasting where, like you said, you're fasting for 20 hours, eating for four, I find that to be very restrictive, especially when we're setting examples for our kids at home and we're not eating when they're eating. And so, you know, we don't we don't want to send the message that it's healthy not to eat and consume food because that can lead to 
um, disorders later in life. And, you know, we, you know, I want to encourage my kids to eat food and I want to encourage them to eat healthy food. And so I want to be a good example for them. I feel like that's important. You know, that wasn't something specifically I learned in grad school. I just think that that is important for us setting a good example for, you know, our kids. Absolutely. And I think our, our brains, our bodies, we're, like you said, we're, nutrition is, is the vehicle for a healthy life. And we need gas every four hours, I'm going to say, some type of snack, yeah. whether that's a handful of nuts, I mean, a, a healthy meal, but without adequate nutrition and nutrients, it's, it's really hard to be the best version of yourself. And, sure. and I think that's great rule modeling. One of the things, Ashley, that I come across when I'm, when I'm working with different uh, patients, I, I work with people across the lifespan from kids to older folks from all different backgrounds, all different demographics, uh, socioeconomic statuses. And one of the big barriers I hear probably 50% of the time for following a healthy diet is, is cost, which we've talked about. That is a huge concern for a lot of people and their ability to implement a healthy diet and eating in, into their families or homes. Do you have any, any recommendations or can you provide some tips for feeding a family of four on a, feeding them healthy meals on a budget? For sure. And I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it, I, it really does come, come down to planning because if we don't if you don't have a plan, you plan to fail. That's the quote I was looking okay. for earlier. That's true. Um, <laughs> I was like, it's going to, it's going to come back to me, but I think it definitely comes all back to planning, but there are definite tips, um, you know, for those that aren't vegetarian or vegan, maybe have a meatless day because it can be meatless Monday, add that into your routine and eat, you know, more legumes or eggs or add in some tofu or a pot, you know, instead of doing pasta, swap it for like a chickpea or a lentil pasta and have your focus be around something that's more plant-based one day a week. Cause that can be cheaper than buying, especially organic meat. Again, going back to, if you don't plan, you plan to fail. Then my husband and I actually on our phones, and now we've added our kids cause they have iPads. We have a, a list that we share like a that we share with the whole family. So whenever anybody needs something, they add it to the list. So I'm only going to the grocery maybe twice a week now instead of like every day. And so that can be helpful because you're going to the store with a list. You're not going to the store and just buying food. So that leads to less sporadic buys. If it's at all in your budget and it's something you want to focus on, just buying organic with a dirty dozen. And that list comes out every year. I think it's by the EWG, the Economic Working Group. And so there's 12 foods that they say these have the most pesticides in them. So just focusing on spending, if you do have the money, the organic versions of those and then buying everything else conventional, like just regular, non-organic to save money there. Um, and then there's a list. They also have a list called the Clean 15. So those are the ones that have the least amount of pesticides that you really don't need to worry about or don't need to buy organic. Um, so that's something. Another tip is buying frozen. We all f- kind of focus on buying fresh produce, but one, it can go bad. Two, how long was it in the truck to transport here and how long has it been sitting on the shelf and how many nutrients does it really have left? And so when you buy fresh frozen, it is picked at its peak ripeness and flat and frozen immediately. So you know that there's actually probably more nutrients in it than the fresh produce that you would buy and making smoothies out of it. There's actually, I learned uh, a couple months ago, you can roast frozen veggies and they taste really great. So that's like 
an easy thing. If you always have frozen veggies on hand, you always have a way to just pop them in the oven and roast them and throw it as a side with your dinner on top of a bowl. And then I always recommend going to the farmer's market because even if it's not organic, a lot of them do have organic produce, but even if it's not organic, you know that it's going to have a lot of nutrients in it because it's local. It didn't travel far to get here. It's very fresh. So it's going to have more micronutrients in it than your peaches from Georgia, for instance, because they're, you know, the fruits and veggies you're getting at a farmer's market are local and they're usually much cheaper than you would get at a grocery store. So that's a great way to focus on getting some whole foods in that are really healthy at a lower price. Um, And then there is this great website that I came across because for those that don't know, about 31.9% of food that is bought goes to waste, which is about $1,900 a household. I believe that. So I found this cool website. It's called myfridgefood.com. So you go to it. And so my whole premise on this is eat the food that you have in your pantry you know, first, right? You already bought it. You've already spent money on it. So myfridgefood.com, you go to it, you put, you put in what you have. Like I have some chicken breast and I have some broccoli and I've got some potatoes and I've got some rice and, and it curates meals. And it's not just one meal. It comes out with multiple different recipes. Now, my caveat is that they're not always healthy recipes. So you have to choose the one that, that is going to be the healthiest for you and your goals. But it's, re- it's really cool that you can just put in the stuff that you have and then it'll throw you recipes based upon the ingredients that you have on hand. That is absolutely brilliant. So, especially for families that stock up during sales, buy one, get right. one free, or they really beef up their pantry and and having that option. Yeah. Not being wasteful. Correct. Correct. The frozen fruit option is brilliant because yeah. that is such a uh, a common issue in our home is I can buy three cartons of strawberries You're or blueberries gone. and then after three or four days, you know, if they haven't been eaten, they get thrown out. And yeah. To have that that steady stream of, of of frozen fruit and and being able to roast the vegetables, I was able to roast some very fresh asparagus last week. That was delicious. But to have that option as well, yeah. to sprinkle a little bit of olive oil and pepper. I mean, fantastic, sure. absolutely. And I'm from Florida, so my my version of cold is different than other people's. So I don't do it as much during the winter in Florida, but in the summers I love a smoothie. So I try to not use any fresh veggies or fruits in my smoothie. I try to use all frozen because then again, it's saving money. And then I know it's picked at its peak ripeness and all of that. And smoothies are a great way to get a lot of um, different micronutrients and foods in. Definitely. I've got to say, though, it's, it's, it's funny because it feels like an endless summer. <laughs> really moving here from upstate New York, it, oh. it's, it seems endless, which is what I love. I mean, we, yeah. you're not sidelined. Right. You're really out enjoying that the sun always comes out every day. And that's well, a beautiful thing. I'm born and raised in Florida. So to me, there is a winter. <laughs> yes, yes, it does get down to like fifty nine, and you can and you can feel it. And I believe your your blood thins mm-hmm. a little bit living here from the warmer weather, so it makes you more susceptible to the fluctuations. But that was one of the first things somebody told me. Oh, we do get this seasons here in Florida, and and I see, I do see it now. I I just think it's funny when it's it's taken to another level with 
Ugg boots and things like that because that's definitely just for show. <laughs> oh yeah, it's just a fashion statement. Yes, exactly, exactly. You are just such a wealth of knowledge. We so fortunate to have you here today, Ashley, and I cannot thank you enough for sharing your expertise with us. Ashley McIntyre, The Elevated Plate. Check it out, everyone. And thank you for listening to today's Brighten Up podcast on your brain on food. Until next time, like the sunflower who faces the sun, remember to live on the bright side of life. Can you please share with our listeners how specifically how they would reach out to you if they are interested in learning more from you or creating a personalized nutrition plan designed to improve their own or family members' overall mental health? Um, So my website is www.theelevatedplate.com. On social media, both Facebook and Instagram, I'm at the.elevated.plate. Always feel free to email me at, um, it's Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y, at theelevatedplate.com. And I would love to work with you. I do offer a free 15-minute discovery call so that we can make sure that we are a right fit and to make sure that, you know, I think that I can help support you and your goals. And if it's not on a client basis, I do love to do community education so and um, corporate education. So if anyone's interested for that, I would also be up for doing talks based upon what they're wanting, you know, to deliver to their clients or their employees. Thanks, Ashley. We'll see you soon. Thanks for having me.